0: Let's study the Word of God this morning. We um, have an ambitious agenda, so I hope you're ready to to turn in your Bibles. We're going to look at three different passages very briefly this morning. Um, They're all very familiar, um, but they're under one theme. Uh, We've been in this series of studies called Listen, uh, and what we are talking about and what we're studying is how we can uh, accurately and faithfully discern the voice of the Lord and as we listen to Him to faithfully uh, and obediently uh, follow what He is saying uh, so that we are in full alignment with His will. Now, early on, we established that this is a crucial need for a lot of reasons, but really uh, for two main reasons, uh, two main factors that are taking place. And this will be a little bit of a review unless you haven't been here. The first reason it's important to be able to discern the will of God is because of the overwhelming inundation of information uh, in our culture as we have become uh, more technologically advanced uh, really it dominates our lives we really can't be without it Um, and if you don't believe that or you you want to test that theory um, turn everything off for a couple days turn off your laptop your phone your internet um, your tv uh, and and have your kids do the same and watch them have fun Um, but but turn everything off try it for for a week And after about three days, we're all going to kind of, you know, start to hyperventilate a little bit. We're going to need a plastic bag or paper bag to breathe into because we're so used to it. It's so much there at our fingertips. And because of the glut of information, we have to be careful that we're able to discern what is right and what is holy and what's not. The second reason um, is that we know that as time goes on, the truth gets more and more distorted. Part of this is the influx of information, and part of it is a redefining of truth and, and a reestablishment of subjectivity uh, as, as truth, rather than what the Word of God says. And we know, and we've talked many times about the fact that the Word has been greatly devalued, uh, not only in our culture, but within a lot of the church, and morality has been redefined. Uh, it's, it's been reduced down, really, to the lowest common denominator, and, and really, anything goes. Um, even the worst possible things that we can imagine, in many ways, are permissible, uh, just by claiming our rights or claiming that, that we should be able to choose what we want and that that supersedes any real moral ethical restraint. So it's really fascinating that, that as information explodes and as truth gets redefined, that we really need to get back to the Word of God. And we need to be able to discern what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Now as believers, we should know that. As believers who have the Word of God in our hands this morning, who have had our hearts and mind transformed by the Lord, who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we should be able to always discern uh, what, what the Spirit's voice is. But with the influx of information, with the redefining of truth, and then with outside voices, outside of our relationship with the Lord, we have a constant challenge of being able to discern And what is really um, intimidating in some ways is that many times those other voices that are speaking to us and those voices that the enemy is distorting to try to draw us away from the Lord and draw us away from truth, many times those voices are people who are close to us. Sometimes they're voices of family or voices of friends or voices of coworkers that we see all the time and, and we get a steady diet from them of things that are not of the Lord. And that makes it a challenge because of our relationship, our love for them, uh, to, to be able to filter and process what's important and what's not. Now, we're going to look at three examples of that this morning, um, and we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, take it and turn there. Um, we're going to look at where one person in each of these passages listened to the misguided advice of another person, and really the results were very di- disastrous. And the reason I believe this is important to study this morning is because we need to see why they listened. Why did they listen and yield to the temptation? And, and how, what they listened to led them to, to think and to reason that disobedience was okay. The more we understand our weaknesses, the more we understand our, our tendencies, the more we're able to mitigate against sin. And the more we recognize when we're being attacked spiritually and how that attack is taking place, the more we can offset it and fight it and follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Because as we're going to see this morning, when we follow misguided counsel, when we follow uh, the, the, the words of someone that's not walking with the Lord, it, it really leads to very serious Lasting consequences. So if you've taken notes this morning, I kind of told the the group at prayer meeting on Thursday night that this is a good way to study. Make a little chart on your notes or on your paper. You can just write bad advice at the top. And then make three little rows across with each of the passages. And we're going to have four columns. I haven't lost you yet, right? All right, bad advice at the top, three rows, four columns. The four columns are going to be the recipient, the reason, the rationale, and the result. In each of these passages, we're going to see who the recipient was of the bad advice, what the rationale was, what the reason was that they disobeyed, and what the result was. Let's start in Genesis chapter 3, which again is a very familiar passage. We quote it a lot because it really serves as a clear example of how temptation presents itself. You know it well, Adam and Eve are in the garden that the Lord's provided for them. And they have um, not been corrupted by sin yet. They have dominion over everything. The presence of the Lord is with them every day. Uh, It is is everything you could possibly want in life. And, And just think about that for a minute, because that's how the Lord created us to live. The Lord created us to live in a place where we're not corrupted by sin, where there's constant fellowship with Him, where our life is fulfilled and has purpose. But when Adam and Eve sin, at the end of this chapter, that instantly changes. This is what sin does. And we've talked about this so many times. But believer, even if you've been saved 40 years, hear this again. This is what sin does. Sin puts us into an environment of shame and regret and isolation and pain and separation from the Lord. And it's only because of the grace and sacrifice of Christ that we can be delivered from that, that we can be restored to the relationship that God designed in the first place. See, all of this, all of the mess that's in the world this morning, all of the mess that's in our lives is because of sin. It's not because God has been unkind or unfaithful or he allows bad things to happen to good people and all the other stuff we hear as reasons for people not to follow God. God created an ideal, intimate fellowship with him, a lack of sin, a pure environment, a place where we would be content beyond understanding. And yet, when sin came in, it, it completely corrupted that. So this is the environment that Adam and Eve are in, and we need to establish that because of what happens next. Now, the, the enemy knows this, which is why he tries to draw us away from the Lord so, so routinely. And it's fascinating in this passage because this is the temptation that he uses the most. I think it's because it's the most effective, and it's because it's the one we give into the most. It appeals to our ego. I don't know what eager is, but it appeals to our ego. It appeals to our desire for pleasure. It appeals to our base instincts. And because that is the attack, I want you to notice how he uses the divide and conquer strategy. The enemy loves to isolate us. He loves to get us out into our own because he knows that when when we're on our own, we don't have other people around us to support us. When you're on your own, always watch yourself. Always know that the attack is going to be uh, more fervent. And we have to be more vigilant in that time alone to get in the presence of the Lord and not allow ourselves to slip into bad habits. So this is what's going on. This is how the enemy attacks. Look at it. Let's start in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. Speaking of Christ, you should bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you'll bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. That's not in a good way. That's in a matter of control. And he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, here's the line, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now the key phrase is there in verse 17 where he says, you listen to the voice of your wife. Now before wives start getting upset with me, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, many times, men, it's a good thing because women have a different insight than we do, and usually they're correct as much as we don't want to admit it. How many say amen? Yeah, nobody's going to say amen to that. Like, I'm not saying amen. She's sitting right next to me. All right? So he listened to the voice of his wife. Now, here's the problem. Eve's heart had already been corrupted by sin, and Adam should have recognized that. But he didn't. The Lord surrounded them with abundance. He surrounded them with all the trees they needed, whose fruit was beautiful and delicious, and he gave them more than enough to satisfy them for their whole lives. They were content with everything. They had the presence of the Lord with them until the enemy came along and lied and said, what God has given you is not enough. And we can always recognize temptation. Listen now, because it has the characteristic of establishing dissatisfaction with what the Lord has said or what the Lord has provided. You can always know it's temptation when it's creating doubt or dissatisfaction about what God said or what God's given you. And that's what he does here. He says, "Well, you know God's not being straight, God's lied. God knows that that tree's going to make you a much better person than you've ever been, and he's withholding from you there, there's a there's a restriction there that the enemy is suggesting, and going along with that feeling of dissatisfaction is the appeal to our flesh, our emotions, our desires our our, our physical and 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 uh, visceral wants and kind of what we think we should have. What is self-indulgent? That's the reason why Adam and Eve fell. They fell because of self-indulgence. We see it all the way back in verse 6, which we didn't read. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, all the other ones were good for food, But she sees that it's good for food and that, look at the phrase, verse 6, that it was a delight to one's eyes and desirable to make one wise, which was a twisted lie. She ate it. Notice how the senses come into play all of a sudden. Her sight, her taste, her touch. But that wasn't what caused them to sin. What caused them to sin was a craving for something more in their minds than God had already given them. Now the Lord hadn't been stingy with Adam and Eve. It wasn't like he had withheld a bunch of things. He had just said no to that one tree to test their obedience, to test whether they were really going to walk with him and follow him. But with the restriction of one tree out of the abundance of the garden, which was beautiful and lush and fragrant and huge, but there's one tree, and they look at it and they say, I don't know, I don't think God should be allowed to restrict me. How many times have we said that? How many times have we fallen into sin? I don't even like that phrase. How many times have we chosen to sin because we think God owes us more? We think God owes us to, to, to have something that we're not supposed to have that will be detrimental to us. But, but we say, listen, God shouldn't restrict me. I have freedom in Christ. Lust is one of these. Adultery is one of these. Materialism, coveting, being selfish. But it, it doesn't really even stop there. And then here's where it gets dangerous. When people around us feed that sense of entitlement because we tend to gravitate to people that tell us what we want to hear and will kind of be our emotional sycophants rather than choosing people to be around us who will hold us accountable spiritually and speak the truth in love. Come on, we know that, right? I'd much rather have a person tell me what I want to hear than say, no, you shouldn't do that. That won't be honoring to the Lord. So when we surround ourselves with people that feed the entitlement and feed the sense that God doesn't have a right to restrict you, rather than people that say, you know what, what would be holy? What would be righteous? What would be honoring to the Lord? That's what happens with Adam and Eve. She looks at the fruit, wow, it's really pretty, it's desirable, I bet that tastes really good. And you know what, there's that added bonus that the serpent told me about, that if I do this, I'll be like God, that is awesome. So she takes and eats, she takes to Adam, hey man, this is really good. And as Adam should have recognized in his wife's eyes, he should have said, wait, what are you doing? Where did you get that fruit? That's off the tree? No, 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 God told us not to do that. Instead, the text says that he listened to the voice of his wife because they had rationalized that God's way had to be wrong because something else looked good. When we get to that place in our walk, we are in serious trouble. And there's a very important spiritual principle that I want to give you right here that, that we need to understand. We have to train our minds to trust that if the Lord has withheld something from us, that it's for our benefit and our maturation. If God has said no... It's not because God is mean or because God is just a God of restraint and God is a God of rules and God is a God of of saying no. No, if God has said no to something, it's because it's for our benefit and our maturation, and we're not strong enough to understand that yet. He told them, don't eat of the tree and that they went and look at the result of this it's in uh, verses 30 uh, excuse me verses 16 and 17 the result of this was pain pain and labor they had never experienced that prior to sin but both are a byproduct of self-indulgence now I'll turn over a couple pages to genesis chapter 37 another story that's very familiar in genesis chapter 37 the setting for this passage is Jacob who was renamed Israel by the Lord, favored his one son, Joseph, over the 11 brothers. I've always wondered why that was so, and I, likely, I think it's likely because he probably saw in Joseph a heart that was really inclined to the Lord, while the other brothers were kind of uh, arrogant and carnal. But there's no question that uh, Jacob's favoritism of Joseph really created a bad family dynamic. Some of you experienced that in your own families where there's a sense of favoritism or a sense of of people being entitled and you feel like you're you're kind of uh, on the short end of the stick, so to speak, in terms of the relationship. Well, that's what the brothers felt like. Joseph was the favored one. Joseph got all the attention from dad. Joseph had the coat of many colors. Joseph this, Joseph that, Joseph that. They were so tired of Joseph. And there was a lot of anger and a lot of resentment that built up that, that really frustrated them. And it gets to the point where um, when, when Joseph's not around, they're happier. And then it gets worse because Joseph, in verse 2, kind of rats on them and goes back to dad one afternoon and says, you know, we were out in the fields and, and the brothers weren't really working hard. They weren't really taking care of the sheep and, and not really attending to the chores you've given them. And I just needed you to know, dad. And, of course, that creates even greater resentment by the brothers because they're like, why'd you, why'd you rat us out? So they're kind of already frustrated. And then he comes back and he says, hey, guys, hey, let me tell you something. They're kind of sitting around lunch. I had a couple dreams. And they kind of look at each other like, this isn't going to go well. And in both of the dreams, they were depicted as bowing down to him. Well, that really got them going. Because they start to say, who are you? Where, where do you think you can tell us that we're going to bow down to you? So um, they, they've just kind of reached their breaking point. In verse 17, they kind of try to ditch him, but he finds them. And when he shows up, and this is where we're going to start reading verse 19. When he shows up, uh, with all this backstory, they're kind of just at the point of, of not being able to handle it anymore. And they see him coming, starting in verse 19. And they say, you know what? We've had enough. Let's hurt him. Let's Start in verse 23. It came about when Joseph reached his brothers. They stripped him of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. With their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judas said to his brothers, "What profit is it to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him for he's our brother, our own flesh." Look at the next phrase. And his brothers listened to him. And some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, I'll tell you about him in a second. And behold, Joseph was not there, so he tore his garments, returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there, and as for me, where am I to go? Now there are two brothers that speak here. One we didn't read because I started reading a little bit late in the passage. But one brother was Reuben, and one brother was Judah. Reuben was the more responsible one. He was older, and he says, and, and they're both irritated with Joseph at this point. They both are, are frustrated. They both are really kind of complicit to the mugging, but, but Reuben has a plan. Reuben's plan is, look, we'll take a little bit of frustration on the kid, and then we'll toss him in the pit, and later I'll get him out, and I'll take him to dad, and we'll get this settled, and, and everything will be fine, but but. After that, Reuben kind of goes away for some reason. He wanders off. Maybe he's chasing the sheep or whatever. And Judah says, you know what, guys? I don't like Reuben's plan. And he didn't really know what was going on, but maybe he could sense it. And he says, you know what? I'm... I'm, I'm irritated. I'm sick of Joseph. I'm sick of him uh, manipulating us. I'm sick of Dad being happy with him, and, and, and I'm dissatisfied with our lack of action. And you know what? Let's let's do something. We don't have to murder him. I mean, after all, he's our brother, and we don't want the blood on our hands. But but let's do something different. And as they're sitting around eating, they look up and they see a caravan going by, and Judas says, "I got a plan." Now, the brothers listen to him at this point. They're completely aware of their relationship with him. They know that harming him would be wrong, but somehow they justify selling him into slavery. Would have been so much better if they had just kind of calmed down and waited and gotten settled and talked through it a little bit. But instead, they become impulsive and irrational, and they conclude that it's perfectly acceptable to get rid of him and lie about it. You know, when we get jealous of somebody or we get resentful that somebody else has a perceived advantage over us or we think the situation is unfair and we're on the losing end, we are very inclined at that point when our emotions get involved to make damaging decisions and then we start to defend them as justifiable. That's exactly what the brothers do here. Whereas Adam and Eve, the temptation was very in your face. Here, the temptation is much more subtle, and it becomes kind of reasonable. This is, we've been hurt, and we're, we're irritated, and we're annoyed, and Joseph is a pain in the neck. And you know what? We, we, this has been unjust. Dad doesn't view us the same as he views everybody else. Joseph's got the special coat. This is, this is an imbalanced situation. And you know what? We need to correct the balance. We need to get this back to where it should be. Now when we're in those situations relationally, it's easy for us to want to get back at those who have hurt and offended us rather than being like Christ and being patient and humble and even in some cases turning the other cheek. But instead of waiting for the Lord to be the adjudicator of the situation because he says, look, where there's injustice, I'll get vived. Uh, I'll, I'll get the revenge that's needed to be gotten if there's injustice because I'm the God of all justice. But instead of calling on him and waiting and saying, Lord, I, I'm in this situation, it's imbalanced, it's unfair, I need you to defend me, I need you to defend what's right, instead of doing that... When we react impulsively, not only do we bring back the imbalance, but then we swing the pendulum all the way back over to the other side. And now we get ourselves in a situation where where we're in the wrong rather than those that really we think we're in the wrong. Think about it. Joseph didn't do anything. There's no sense in the text that he's smug. Or that he's walking around kind of flaunting his dreams and flaunting his coat and saying, I'm better than you guys. You get the sense when you read the text that as he's telling them about the dreams, it's not with arrogance. It's more like, can you guys help me understand this? Because I don't know what's really going on. I had this dream, and, and we were all wheat stalks, and yours bowed down to mine. And then I had a dream where we were all stars, and your stars bowed down to mine. And, and I don't really know... What's going on here? And they just look at him with anger and hostility and resentment and say, you know what? I've had enough. And sure, that had to be hard on their ego. But instead of justifying their sin, they should have said, you know, the Lord's saying something here and we need to understand it. But nobody does that. So they kind of nonchalantly set the whole thing up and they attack him as he comes close and they throw him in a pit that doesn't even have water in it. And then in a, in a clear act of just how callous their hearts were, they just sit around and have lunch like nothing's going on. Joseph's down there in the pit yelling, hey guys, come on, let me out. I don't have any water in here. What, what, what's going on? And they just say, hey, what do you think, Reuben? Hey, I don't know. What do you think, Gad? Oh, it's, it's good. Good day. Beautiful. Boy, look at the star. Look at the, look at the clouds. How's your sandwich? Is it good? Can you imagine? And all of a sudden, they see a caravan passing by, and they say, there's our plan. See, their selfish motivation overrode their sense of morality or their sense of relationship. And listen, the same thing will happen to us if we don't crucify our pride every day. Not only will we make decisions that are, that are poor in terms of our relationships and our, our marriage and our parenting, but we'll make decisions that will damage our relationship with the Lord. We'll start to justify disobedience. We'll start to justify resistance to the Spirit's conviction. We'll start to have division and disagreements with other believers because we're going to balance it out. If God's not going to take action and we're going to continue to be in this unjust situation, you know what, then I'm going to take care of it myself. And it's all based on pride. Why did they want to get rid of Joseph? Because he had their father's attention. If we can get rid of Joseph, dad will pay attention to us. Dad will notice us. Dad will start appreciating us. If we can just get this cruddy little brother out of our lives who's so annoying and thinks he's so much better than us, if we could just get rid of him, then dad will notice us. That's what it's all about here. And the result of their sin is not pretty. When they reunite reunite with Joseph in chapter 45, and you can look at that this week, we learn that for years they were filled with guilt and with shame for what they had done and sorrow that they had been separated from their brother and caused such heartache to their father, all because they had acted impulsively and selfishly. We have to be cautious when we're in situations that are not fair that we don't react in this way to try to correct the problem. Now look at one more, chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. There's so many different examples of these principles in Scripture, but these are just three and they're familiar, which makes it a little bit easier because we don't have to establish a lot of background to them. But in chapter 32 of Exodus, Israelites are in the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. And they stop at Sinai. God stops them there and says, I'm going to give you the law. Moses goes up on the mountain. The cloud surrounds the mountain. The presence of the Lord's up there. They can hear the voice of the Lord. They see the thunders and thunder and lightning that's the, the presence of God, the, the power of God. The people are aware that God is up there. And as Moses is up on the mountain for many days, Aaron, the high priest, who's supposed to be the religious leader uh, of the nation, he has responsibility for the people. Now what's fascinating about the people is only once from the time they were delivered from Egypt, and I think it's chapter three, only once between their deliverance from Egypt. To now, chapter 32, have they ever shown gratitude for what the Lord has miraculously done? The only time between chapter 3 and chapter 32 that they actually thank and praise the Lord is right after the Red Sea at the end of chapter 14, the start of chapter 15, when they see Pharaoh's troops drown and they're on the other side and they praise the Lord and chapter 15 is all like a, a song of praise to God. As soon as that song of praise is done, they start complaining. They start demanding. They haven't had any time of worship, any time of celebration, any time of prayer, any time of praise. They haven't said, you know what, we need to take a week to just fast and pray and thank the Lord for what he's done. There's none of that. There's one time that they thank the Lord. And after that, it's just, we want water. We want food. We want meat. We want water again. And they start to fight. So they have to establish judges to 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 deal with the conflict. And why do I tell you all that? I tell you that because they are not living with grateful, dependent hearts. And when that is not our default, listen now very carefully. We have to really analyze our lives honestly. Because this may be more true than we want to admit. When discontentment and ingratitude and complaining is more common in our lives than, than contentment and satisfaction in the Lord and His provision... That is when we're susceptible to what happens here. Really take time this week. I mean, just you and the Lord. Get together with the Lord and say, Lord, how much of my time is spent in dissatisfaction and discontentment and complaining? And how much of my time is spent praising you for how you've provided? I think we would all, myself included, be a little frightened by the percentages. I am not always, 24 hours a day, a joyful, content, praising God kind of person. There are things that get me down, things that bug me, things that irritate me, things that anger me, and things that make me just want to complain and feel ungrateful. That that really is not characteristic of someone who's walking with the Lord who knows His help. And yet, it's characteristic of us. And when we get into the pattern of that, look at what happens. Chapter 32, verse 1. The people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. It's implied in verse 2 that Aaron listens because he says to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation. One of the strangest verses in Scripture. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose up early and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this whole thing started with their impatience in waiting for the Lord and impatience and I'm somebody that struggles with this, is always a contradiction of faith. Their impatience in the Lord then becomes a need or a desire to create a substitute for God. And Aaron is not only complicit and listens to the people, he actually encourages it. But what is stunning here, and I mean stunning, is in verses 4 to 6. After they see him create this golden calf, and and melting gold and forming it into a calf is not a one-hour process, right? That's going to take a while. All the people, two million strong, take all the earrings. They take all the gold. They take all the rings. They throw them in a big pot. Abraham, uh, excuse me, sorry, Aaron does the job of, of melting that and kind of forming it. And they have to make some kind of shape. And he takes a tool and, 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 and scratches into it and, and form. I mean, this is a long process. After they see him make that golden calf, then they give credit to what didn't exist a few hours before, and they say, that's what brought us out of Egypt. It, it's, it's stunning. I've always wondered how that could be. And then, Aaron builds an altar to it. Now, they've already broken commandments one and two, just, just to start. Aaron builds an altar to it, and he says, tomorrow, we're going to have a, a feast to the Lord. In other words. We're going to worship before the false God that is taking the place of the true God in order to celebrate the true God while we worship the false God who led us out of Egypt. Does that make sense to anybody? But verse 6 really takes the cake. They wake up the next day with no remorse. They burn offerings. They eat and they drink and they play like nothing's happening. Moses is up on the mountain that's still surrounded by the presence of God with the thunder and lightning and the voice of God speaking. Moses is still up there, and they say, you know what? We're sick of waiting for Moses. We have no idea what's happening. He may be dead. We need a substitute. And they sit around the next day partying with their false God. Apparently, they rationalized that a new God was better than the one who had delivered them And been faithful to them. Now you say, all right, well, that's crazy. If you had been there, how could you have done that? Well, we'll probably never do something as blatant as worshiping a golden calf. But here's where it gets hard there are plenty of other gods we worship, there are plenty of other gods that we bow down to and substitute for the true God. We love money and we love material possessions. And we love our relaxation and we love our self time and we love our sports and we love our hobbies and our schedule dominates our priorities. But when the Lord says, I want some time, I want you to spend some time waiting on me and thanking me for delivering you from sin and serving me as as Using the gifts that I've given you, when when he says that, all of a sudden we say, "You know what? I don't really have any time. I don't really have any time." Now I want to be cautious here and ask the Holy Spirit to really speak. This is not a guilt trip. This is just a reality. It's a reality. We have other priorities. We have other things that are more important. And and we can look at those and go, well, you know, I have to do this and I have to do this. And, yeah, there are things that we have to do. But are we making sure we're getting time in the presence of the Lord and that we're putting him first? And we've heard that message a thousand times. Let's hear it a thousand and one we have to make a priority to get in the presence of the Lord. How often do we move on from that because we're impatient, or because it's hard to spend time abiding in the presence of the Lord, and it's hard to carve out time to study, and it's hard to carve out time to pray, and it's hard to get here on Thursday night. It's 7 to 8. It's kind of late. My kids are tired, and I got sports. And, and No, what's the priority? Are we going to spend time in the presence of the Lord or are we not? The Israelites say, we don't want to wait anymore. We don't want to spend time in the presence of God. We don't really want His rules. Let's create a substitute that will be amenable to us that we can kind of say, this is good and we don't need God. And because of that, what happens? The same thing that will happen to us If we don't give enough time in the presence of the Lord, we will wander aimlessly and not have a clue what we're doing. If we don't spend time in the presence of the Lord, if we don't make God the greatest priority, we will be just like the Israelites who wander for 40 years, dying off in the wilderness because they chose not to listen to God. If we don't spend time in the presence of the Lord, we will wander aimlessly. We will have no clue. We will be insecure, and uncertain, and unaware of what to do next. And the Lord, honestly, will discipline us for not being faithful. Now, let's wrap it up. In each of these three accounts, Adam, Joseph's brothers, and Aaron's, these are people that knew the truth. They knew that the Lord is faithful But instead, they listened to poor counsel that entices them to disobey the Lord. And the counsel came from people that were close to them. But they should have recognized that it was contrary to what the Lord had told them. So we have to ask ourselves, and we may have already asked this in another study. Let's ask it again. What voice are we listening to? Wisdom only comes from the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is what? Tell me. The beginning of wisdom. See, we need to study harder. The fear of the Lord, listen to the words, is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, when I fear the Lord, I'm not just given all wisdom. There, I'm good. I fear the Lord, now I know everything. No, the fear of the Lord is just the start. It's just where wisdom starts to be birthed in us. So if we really want to gain wisdom, we have to fear the Lord more and more, and we have to spend more and more time in his presence. We studied this Thursday night that if we don't get that wisdom from the Lord, if we do not get wisdom from the Lord, we will fall into patterns of fear and anxiety and insecurity and isolation and a feeling of defeat. And there is no way, there is no way that Jesus went to that cross so we would live in fear and anxiety and isolation and insecurity and defeat. There's no way. Victory was won on the cross. He says you're overcomers. He says you are more than conquerors. Not just, I gave you victory. He said, now you're more than victory. You're more than conquerors through me, and I will give you the correct counsel if you will seek me, because the Spirit will never lead us incorrectly. How many know that's true? The Spirit of God will never lead us incorrectly. He will never lead us towards sin. He will never lead us to what will separate us from God. He will never lead us toward unholiness. He will always lead us toward righteousness and wisdom. And I don't know about you, but I want righteousness and wisdom in my life. I want more holiness, more wisdom, more understanding, more insight, more of the Spirit. Come on, we want to be filled with the Spirit, not just, oh, a little bit. We want to be overflowing with the Spirit in our lives.